Have you had enough change? <sighs> it's six months since the inauguration, and the Women's March took place just the following day. Every day we're reading news stories that surprise and shock us, and they're coming at us daily. In the past, one of these stories might have come every three months, four months. We're getting these daily, daily stories. You know what I'm talking about. It's the feeling that everything is in motion and there's no calm oasis in which to rest. And the feeling that once in the past there was a normal and now that normal is no longer here. That's change spelled with a capital C. But I want to tell you there was something specific that kind of uh, took me to the place where I wanted to uh, speak about change. And that was the uh, sermon that Michael Brown gave on Evolution Sunday. How many people were here on Evolution Sunday, heard about Darwin and, um, and the, 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 how evolution altered everything about the way the West looks at, at everything. That was February 12th. And Michael, who's here, Michael, you talked about Charles Darwin, um, how he gradually came to his theory of evolution, and how that changed science, changed our civilization. And from the very first publication of his theory has caused conflicts and controversies between the sciences and religion. Over the years since that publication, um, Michael pointed out that some religious groups have hardened themselves against the possibility of embracing evolution, while some others have acknowledged that not only is evolution as a part of, uh, as a part of our world and our universe, but have actually said that their own religious orientation and beliefs and practices are evolving. What was particularly of interest to me was when Michael talked about uh, the writing of uh, Reverend Fred Muir and his vision of a religion that took evolution as factually true and not the enemy, but just the way things are. Well, my attention got really focused at that point and he went on to say that Fred Muir believes that not only could this be done, but that this sort of orientation to uh, evolution and change would have the wisdom in it to save humanity. And Muir goes on to say further that the first feature of such a religion would be the recognition that everything is always changing all the time. There wouldn't be anything in the universe that was not changing. While the tone of all this suggested that this idea of religion is hypothetical, I was inwardly thinking that this already exists. Buddhism is a faith tradition that does indeed, and did from the very start, point out that change is all there is, and that seeing change clearly can lead to enlightenment. And I want to go back to the Buddha's first sermon. I, um, probably talked about this at various times in various places, but I'm going to go back to this because there's a really important little part of that. Um, he described his enlightenment to 
the companions with whom he had been on his spiritual quest. And they had been doing these very physically taxing spiritual practices, very painful, and he had left them feeling that these uh, practices were not taking him where he needed to go. And after his enlightenment, the very first people he spoke to were these companions. He went back, he found them where they had, they had moved on. Um, he found them and he spoke to them about what exactly had gone into his enlightenment. He talked about the unsuccessful practices, which he referred to kind of as dead ends, uh, that he, and, and he himself had taken these dead ends uh, in order to find relief from suffering. Now this was, the, this was really the goal of the Buddha. His particular focus for his spiritual quest was to find a way to alleviate and eliminate um, suffering. And now I have to do the footnote that we always do that says, we're not talking about physical pain when we talk about the suffering that the Buddha was trying to uh, find an answer for. Uh, physical pain will always be with us. The word suffering that's used uh, in Buddhism is dukkha, and it has a lot of different meanings from anxiety to uncertainty, uh, to anguish, um, uh, guilt, ups, uh, stress, and all emotional and mental feelings of struggle constitute suffering. So going back to the Buddha and his companions, <clears throat> he described the dead end of pursuing sustained pleasure and the dead end of pursuing <coughs> pain as a way to transcend the body and find spiritual enlightenment. Uh, and at that time, these, those kinds of practices were really, uh, <coughs> really quite prevalent. So he spoke of both of those as dead ends, and he described a middle way, a method of practice, that allows the mind to see how we create suffering for ourselves, that we ourselves uh, are in our minds are the source of suffering. When we, uh, and this happens when we crave various experiences, and, to, and that his method allowed you to see that suffering, see the craving, and then also see what happens when the craving stops. That when the craving stops, the suffering stops. Now according to the sutras, at the end of the Buddha's speech to these companions, one of his companions said something that showed that he had immediately, on hearing the words, on hearing the speech of the Buddha, that he had immediately become enlightened. So he made this statement. It was a simple phrase, and it summarized uh, what is encapsulated in the heart of the teaching. So you would think this is a pretty important phrase. What was the comment? Well, it's translated in various ways, and here are some of the translations. They're all pretty similar, but I wanted to give you, you know, a number of translations. Whatever arises, ceases. Whatever has started can stop. Whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. Whatever is subject to arising is all subject to cessation. So we might say simply everything changes. Change is all there is. Uh, when this man, whose name was Kandana, said this, the Buddha immediately said, 
Kandana knows, Kandana knows. Kandana's got it. So think about it. That simple phrase indicated that he comprehended everything you need to know for enlightenment. Um, that's really pretty astonishing. Now, you might remember hearing, if you've read anything into Buddhism, you might remember reading that when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he pretty much always said the same thing. He said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. But Kandana did not say, there's suffering and the end of suffering. He basically said, everything changes. So looking at change, looking at change, when we spell it with a capital C, is central to Buddhist practice and to enlightenment. So why doesn't Buddhism call itself the religion of change? All right, I'm gonna make an analogy. I hope it works. What if there were a breathing therapy practice, all right? So imagine a group of medical people who deal with breathing issues, and these probably exist. I know there are people who have breathing issues. Um, and what if they called themselves the air group? And what if the first thing they told the patient was, there's oxygen all around you. All you have to do is get that. You just have to get that the air is out there um, and, and you'll be fine. It says no therapist would, want, would choose to just emphasize the presence of oxygen because we all know that or we think we know it. I suppose there are people who work in the world of physics who probably say we don't know nearly as much about the air around us as, as there is to know. But we pretty much all know there's oxygen out there. And secondly, knowing that probably wouldn't solve the problem. I, it's hard to imagine a person for whom that would solve a breathing problem, simply being told, oh, there's oxygen all around. A person going to a therapist for help with his breathing would need to, to describe when and how his breathing was difficult and how it felt when it was being experienced. And then there might be a diagnosis and some exercises to strengthen muscles or to expand lung capacity. The therapist would have to find out the particular way that the patient was suffering from not being able to breathe effectively and work to alleviate the suffering. Similarly, Buddhism is very practical. It starts with the immediate and pressing problem of how you and I suffer. So while the first person on record to be enlightened by the teaching expressed this with the phrase, whatever arises, ceases, the Buddha did not go around saying, I teach that change is all there is. He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. But let's stop and notice that a pretty major connection has been made in this story. Kandana's realization and the Buddha's later recorded statements about what he teaches, when you take them together, it shows that suffering is connected intimately to change and our experience of change. Suffering arises when we relate to change in certain ways. If change is all there is out there, and it can't be avoided, then the emphasis needs to be on how we can examine our relationship to change in order to end our suffering. For Kandana, his enlightenment came when his view changed and got clearer. 
does that mean that perhaps Buddhism should present itself as the faith that will change the way you look at change? And what precisely did Kandana realize? This is a very short little phrase that he said. Um, surely he already knew the obvious that things change. So let's look at the translations again. Whatever arises ceases. Whatever has started can stop. Whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. Whatever is subject to arising is all subject to cessation. The important words are not the ones that describe change, start, stop, arising, ceasing. The important words are whatever and all and nature. They're all little, little parts of that quote that says that we tend to see change as happening against a kind of background that is stable. To say everything changes and things change kind of quietly assumes that there is this background that's, that's sort of um, a comforting stillness against which we can watch change. That it's something that intrudes in our lives. It's something that comes in and then goes out. Something that we can look at while we wait for it to stop or while we get used to it. It's a trick of the mind to imagine that we live on a kind of stage set and that somebody occasionally moves the props around or totally rearranges the furniture, but that the set remains pretty much stable. We talk about looking at change or living through changes. And the truth is, there is no look at change. Remember Yoda, there is no try? All right, Yoda fans in here, there is no try. There is no look at change because there isn't anything else to look at. And here's the other realization that Kandana apparently had. The mind's tendency to want to see change as happening in the middle of a stable background is a subtle form of clinging. It's a form of craving. And right there you have the origin of suffering. Even in the little phrase, we're going to look at change, we're going to watch change happen, there's a little bitty kernel in there of craving for stability. Now that's not to say that we have to stop doing that. We're all going to continue talking as if changes come and go and change intrudes in our lives and then retreats. So it's not about, it's not about changing that. It's natural to us to do that. But it shows how our minds move toward wanting stability and predictability. To begin to learn how not to suffer, we must get it and really see it that change is all there is. Now another question that comes up is, why do we so often see change as negative? Now we're living in a lot of changes that we feel are negative. 
But why do we, in the normal course of things, see some, you know, see change generally as, as negative? Why do we see an orderly, stable existence as normal? We don't always do that. Sometimes we talk of something as being a change for the better. But complaining about change is far more common than talking about loving change. Sometimes a change that we want is slow in coming. And sometimes we work to make things, certain changes happen. And when that good thing, that good development finally comes along, we already feel it's normal. We feel it's sort of part of, part of our normal experience. It's already in a way part of that stable background. It's something that was sort of missing and now when it's here, it, it completes our stable background. But many changes upset us and I think we're programmed by both nature and nurture to mistrust change. Now think about, think about um, nature or the, the way we evolved the way we evolved. Primitive man, surrounded by threats to his survival, must have dreamed of a stable environment where events could be predicted. Even in a hostile environment, you can deal with the dangers if they're known and predictable. So that kind of stability must have been something that was longed for. And what about just our need for rest? our need for physical rest. We get physically tired and we want the ease of relaxation with no interruptions and no need to be vigilant against threats or ready to jump up and do something. So just our physical life kind of puts us in a position to, to want stability. And safety, questions of safety. Familiar and stable things make us feel comfortable and safe. When people became more civilized, they developed rules um, to reduce the changes within the group and to, pr and to promote stability. Don't worship another god. Don't marry out of your tribe. Don't dress like the foreigners dress. Only plant the crops on the days when the high priest says it's okay. There was a desire for a kind of uniformity and that was feel, felt safe and stable. Even now, in our modern society, we get lots of message, messages that say stasis is good and change is bad. Just the act of mowing our lawns and trimming our hedges and trying to keep them always looking the same is a kind of quiet way we try to keep things stable. And we, our society promotes that. We kind of uh, get upset when people don't keep their lawns mowed. They're not promoting that stable look in the neighborhood. Um, we try to keep things looking perpetually new, right? This varies from person to person, but there are people who like wash their car constantly and want it to be new, or other possessions keep them, keep them looking the way they were when you first brought them home. Um, who of us is not depressed when we get the first scratch in the new car? It's like the change that means it's not new anymore. And, uh, and it's just, you know, kind of, kind of a downer. We can't deny the overwhelming cultural pressure to look younger than we actually are. And many try through extreme measures to look as young as possible for as long as possible. It's a kind of making time stand still. 
And there are people who defend social norms and values that actually support prejudice and injustice. I remember during the 1960s and the civil rights movement, people saying, but we're not ready for that. The implication was, yes, it's not fair to everybody, but we're not ready for that kind of change. There was a need for some people to keep things as they are. Our culture has a myth, a collective dream of the good old days, in which people live in a small town like Mayberry with a cast of familiar characters, a cast that's fairly small and doesn't change too much, only the occasional guest who comes in who's the visiting relative. And the values in Mayberry are unchanging. In Western philosophies, there are terms like the ultimate good and absolute truth. In Western religions, God with a capital G is the ultimate good and is viewed as being unchanging. For thousands of years, civilizations have been building monuments and tombs with the idea that they will last. Pyramids, ziggurats, terracotta armies, temples, satellites with Oh, satellites are modern equivalent, the satellite that has the recordings of the sounds of Earth so that there will be something out there of us that lasts. All of these things are physical ways of making something last, having something to look at that, that reflects that longing for permanence that we have. We love to make life stand still, even if it's just by taking lots of photos because that's a way of freezing, you know, freezing the moment and keeping it. My senior class play was the Broadway musical Brigadoon. Anybody here familiar with Brigadoon? Oh, goodness, I'm surprised. Do you know why they chose it? They chose it because it was the Broadway hit the year we were all born. So that's why Brigadoon was, was picked. <sighs> the story is set in the Highlands of Scotland deep in the night on a murky brae, when two weary hunters lose their way. When dawn breaks, they find themselves in a village called Brigadoon, where everyone, strangely, looks and dresses and speaks and acts as people did 200 years before. Boy meets girl, they fall in love, and boy is then told the remarkable story of the village. To protect Brigadoon from being changed by the outside world, 200 years before, the local minister prayed to God to have Brigadoon disappear, only to reappear for one day every 100 years, not long enough to be changed by the influences of the world. All the citizens of Brigadoon are forbidden to leave the town, or it will disappear forever. At the end of the story, the hero decides to give up everything he has ever known to stay in the village with the girl he loves. It was an award-winning play, and it came right after World War II. And you can imagine that a great uh, part of its appeal was the idea of going to a place that could be sheltered forever from modern life and the awful things that modern life has brought. So Brigadoon was, was a big hit, and I can still sing many of the songs. <laughs> the, 
These kinds of cultural messages encourage us to see a polarity with stable and unchanging on the good side and change on the bad side. What Kandana saw was not that things change, but he saw that that polarity is false and that there is nothing other than change. If you can perceive it, it's in the process of changing. If it exists, it will someday cease to exist. The end of everything is present at its beginning. You are changing physically. Now we could go into a list of precisely what about you is changing. They're out there on the internet. They will tell you how long it takes for your eyebrows to completely change over. Um, um, I do, I, I will say however, I, some cells, apparently there are cells in the digestive system that die and are replaced in minutes. And there are others like bone cells that take a very long time, um, but we all have a different skeleton than we had 10 years ago. Um, but every part of you is changing at different rates. So physically, you are not the same person, even, from, even in a five minute span. You are, and what about your mind? You're changing your views, your habits of thoughts, and your personality. How many of your opinions have changed? How about your taste in literature, thinking through the whole of your life? Your political views. Are there any movies you once liked that you think are inane? You see them and, and wonder how you ever thought that was a, a good or wonderful or entertaining movie. How about your musical tastes? And have you cultivated any new skills since childhood? Around us, everything is changing constantly. The universe is expanding, tectonic plates are shifting, radioactive substances are moving through half-lives. Masses of moisture in the atmosphere are condensing into rain, ocean levels and temperatures are rising, redwood trees, geraniums, and all the other plants are growing, blooming, and dying. Mold is forming on the food in the back of the fridge. The crack in the wall of the dining room is getting more visible. The scratch you got from the rose bush is healing. Our memories of the past are becoming altered. People who study memory know that we don't remember things precisely and our memories change. And there are places where mythic poems and folk tales are still recited aloud and they're coming out slightly differently every time they're recited. If you can perceive it, it's in the process of changing. And there is no background, there is only change. You might as well change the words life and existence to the word change, because it's all the same thing. We don't suffer because of change, we're alive because of change. We suffer because we cling to some changes and call them good, and push away others and call them bad. In reality, our mind is labeling these out of habit, sometimes below our level of awareness, not really knowing where life's developments are going to take us. But nevertheless, the mind will apply these labels. And then we believe the labels that the mind creates and, and places on these developments. There's a famous story that comes out of the Zen tradition that expresses how we can label the things that happen. And it goes like this, and you've probably heard it before. This is a pretty well-known story. There's a farmer in China, and he has a horse 
and he has a very strong eldest son. And this makes him a very fortunate man because he can work his farm with a horse, not everyone has one, and he has a son to help him and to take over when he can't do it anymore. And one day, the horse gets out of the paddock and runs away. And the village says, this is terrible. What are you going to do? You have all that land and you won't be able to just work it without a horse and what's going to happen? And the farmer said, well, maybe. And the next day, the horse comes back and with him come two wild horses. And they all come back and they're able to corral the two wild horses. Well, now the farmer has three horses. And the village is just jubilant. You have three horses. This makes you not just well off. This makes you truly wealthy. You have these resources. And the farmer says, maybe. And the following day, the sun goes out and decide, and he's going to work at taming the wild horses that were brought back by their horse. And he falls off one of the horses and he breaks his leg. And the people of the village come around and say, oh my gosh, this is your oldest son and your mainstay, your main help with your farm. What are you going to do? He can't, you know, he can't help with the horses now. He can't help with the land. This is awful. And the farmer says, maybe. And the day after that, the emperor's troops come through and they take every able-bodied young man to be pressed into the army. But they don't take the farmer's son because he has a broken leg. And the village says, oh my gosh, isn't that lucky that he's incapacitated because otherwise they would have taken him. Well, the story doesn't end. It can go on and on forever. But that's the way um, we tend to be like the villagers. Every time something happens, we put a label on that development. And the farmer had more wisdom. He was willing to see that something's going to happen down the road. And you can't really tell if the development of today is going to end up being something that turned out to be good or something that turned out to be bad. Okay. The neighbors see the ebb and flow of the farmer's fortunes and label them. And the farmer takes each event with no expectations refusing to get drawn either into excited celebration of good fortune or the fearful expectation of failure and ruin. Both of, these, both of these polarities in Buddhist tradition are forms of suffering. Moving toward clinging to something that appears to be good, moving toward aversion for what appears to be bad. So, Buddhism de describes itself as the faith tradition that teaches suffering and the end of suffering. It points out that like everything else, suffering arises and it also ceases. So this is a large part of what Kandana's comment means, that suffering comes, suffering also goes. This is the Buddhist equivalent of the phrase we're all familiar with, this too shall pass. But the truth about change is better than that. That actually is a kind of dreary phrase. It's always pulled out in dreary situations, so we kind of associate it with, with dreariness. But change is actually better than that. Change being the nature of life also means that every moment is an opportunity to see more clearly 
and to move toward peace and equanimity. Equanimity being the kind of balance that the farmer had to enjoy the good things, to be aware of the bad things, to know that they're going to cause problems, but to maintain a mental balance. That's equanimity. And because things are constantly changing, we have the opportunity to cultivate that clearer view and to observe that because things change, we can appropriately be balanced um, in our view. You could call that the Buddhist equivalent of the good news of salvation. Everything is changing, therefore, we all have opportunities to get enlightened. It also means that the stereotype of the peaceful, passive Buddhist who simply observes without engaging in life is not accurate. This is a very common, this still, this still is, uh, is a very commonly held stereotype that, um, that Buddhists tend to stand back from engaging. But if change is all there is, and we're each a part of it, we can choose to be an agent of change. We can direct how we are part of that change. We can be more changey or less changey. We can uh, go in and be very vigorous in the way we engage, or we can choose to go with the flow and, and in certain situations, uh, simply uh, be peaceful and acquiesce in what's happening. Cultivating clear vision allows us to do that wisely, decide how much we're going to get into the change or when, when it's better to kind of uh, be aloof from it. Like a program of therapy, Buddhism emphasizes practices to relate more realistically and effectively to the nature of existence. And impermanence, yeah, I didn't really mention this, but impermanence is one of the three characteristics of existence in the Buddhist uh, philosophy. The three are impermanence, suffering, and what is called no-self, which would be a couple of presentations all by itself. But it's basically that the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves um, are products of our own mind. But anyway, Buddhism emphasizes how to realistically and effectively engage with existence, given that impermanence is one of the main features. The two best known practices are meditation practice, especially the form known as insight meditation, and mindfulness. Meditation practice teaches the mind how to notice things. Doesn't the mind already know how to do that? The short answer for, Buddhist, for Buddhism is no. <laughs> the mind is very much bound up by habits, like putting quick labels onto things. And that keeps it from pausing to actually look at experience. Learning to pay attention enough to see habits of mind opens us up to more peace and clarity. And it's not some weird esoteric process. It's simply learning to see how we all gravitate toward wanting things to be other than they are. And we get to see how much we cling to the idea that there is a place where, or a time when, there's no change. That's one of the main things we gravitate to. Mindfulness practice 
teaches how to bring the ability to pay attention to everyday experience. We spend a lot of our lives on automatic pilot. We've all noticed that. Um, think about the time you've pulled into your driveway and you can't remember any streets for the previous mile. You don't actually remember having passed things. We do a lot of things automatically. That's one of the great things about our mind, that we can do that, but it, uh, it creates a, it, it plays into this idea of habits of mind. It's a sign of our habits of mind. Mindfulness puts us back on manual. You have to pay attention. We notice ourselves grasping for things that seem to promise stability so that we can feel in control. We notice ourselves pushing away and worrying about things that seem to bring unwanted changes. We notice how our minds want to buy into these labels and the stories that they lead to. And simply the process of noticing, simply paying attention to that, puts us in a better place. We can bring compassion to our fears and insecurities if we notice that it's fear and insecurity that are making us want these things. We can pause and laugh at the way our minds jump to conclusions and wonder about what will happen next. And once we have a clearer view of change with the capital C, we can navigate it mindfully. We can recognize our need for peace and rest and create places of comfort among things that change more slowly. That's what we do when we come here. We come into the sanctuary. Now this whole building is built to be solid and to last, to change very slowly. So just being here in the building, in any building, makes us feel a little more secure. But we come here and we see these old oak pews. And if you think about it, those pews were a sapling, and before that they were an acorn. And they had to grow. I mean, imagine the age that, that the tree had to get to to be able to supply the lumber for these. And they've already been through some changes. They were moved. They were refinished. Um, hopefully they will last a very, very long time. But they're changing really slowly. So being here and having them here uh, is a reminder that we can be in a place where things move slowly. And the same with the windows. They will need some care. They will undergo change. The, the glass itself in them changes, I've read, um, because glass is a liquid. So they'll need some, they'll need some uh, tender, loving care, but they will last. And just being here in this environment uh, puts us in a place where we can rest a little bit, even knowing that we're still in, in the presence of change. And they remind us that we want to be in harmony with that change. We want to be where we need to be in that change. We want to be in the places where the change is slow, when we need a little comfort and a little break. Um, and we need to be in the places where the change is happening faster, when that's where we are in our lives. But being here, uh, these surroundings let us know that it's okay to slow down. 
And paying attention might help us notice that there are opportunities for enjoyment that arise because something is changing quickly. Like fresh flowers that last only a few days. And how about the frozen dessert that as you eat it is going from frozen solid to melted while you're eating it and you're getting to experience all the, all the ways that dessert can be, all the ways that ice cream or sorbet can feel and taste like going through those changes. And what about fireworks? They are simply a set of, of they're, a, they're a, a symphony of changes. They are a presentation of sound and color and movement and they come and go in a matter of seconds. And the very essence of what they are and why they, they thrill us is because they are, a const they are constantly changing and last just a little while. Mindfulness helps us see each as an opportunity for conscious enjoyment in the moment. Whether we are noticing slow change or fast change, we'll be letting go of the idea that something out there is permanent, and that is at the heart of enlightenment. The Buddha explained that both the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of spiritual truth through, through physically painful practices were ways of seeking something permanent and unchanging. And they're both distractions. They're both dead ends. Nothing is immune to change. There is no immutable truth and we must find our spiritual path in a moving landscape. And this is what Kundana got when he heard the Buddha. So what do we get? Maybe what we get falls under the simple heading of good advice. Don't spend your precious life looking for what doesn't exist. Don't wish to make life stand still. You'll never have a car that doesn't eventually get a scratch in it. You'll never have a life that doesn't eventually get a scratch in it. See the change. Notice the evolving textures, sights, and sounds. Watch your mind jumping to conclusions and labeling developments as good and bad before any evidence is in. Jump in, join in, and become a conscious participant. Get good at going with it. Alan Watts, the great teacher of Eastern philosophies in the 1960s said, the only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance. So let's all let go of that need to pin everything down and make everything hold still. Let's open up to the energy of change with a capital C. Let's learn to see it and feel it. Let's watch our own reactions to change. Change. <laughs> As we go from hating it to loving it and back to hating it. If change is the music that makes existence what it is, and if everything and everyone around us is dancing, let's open the doors, let's listen to the music, and let's learn to dance. <laughs>